From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 65. We've got an awesome guest today, one of the really good guys in the game, um, who comes from a bunch of different experiences, growing up in the Midwest and then playing overseas before he came back here to the U.S. So we're in for a really good show that that highlights a lot of different baseball cultures, um, teach a lot of important lessons for both players and coaches and parents alike. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally, I love it for, for obviously, our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, We split our time between two states, and and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, So life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, They've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest grew up in Indiana and was drafted out of high school by the Astros in the third round of the 2005 MLB draft. He opted not to sign and instead attended the University of Tennessee. After one season as a starting pitcher for Tennessee, he transferred home to Purdue where he became the closer. The Dodgers selected him in the second round of the 2008 MLB draft, and he worked his way up to AA in his first season with the organization. He made his major league debut in 2011, pitching 29 and two-thirds innings that year with a 2.73 ERA and 28 strikeouts. In the years that followed, he spent time with the Phillies, Rangers, A's, and Pirates before he headed to Korea for the 2015 and 2016 seasons with the Lottie Giants. After those two successful seasons, he returned on a minor league deal with the Pirates in 2017. Halfway through the season, he re-signed with the Giants to return to Korea. That offseason, he signed with the Doosan Bears and had a breakout season in 2018. He started 26 games and compiled a 15-4 record, a league-leading 2.88 ERA, and the Pitcher's Gold Glove Award. The following year, he received the 2019 KBO League Most Valuable Player Award after posting a 20-3 record with a 2.50 ERA and 189 strikeouts over 194 and two-thirds innings. He also received his second consecutive Pitcher's Gold Glove Award in 2019. 
This past December, he signed a three-year deal with the Milwaukee Brewers to come back to the United States. Please welcome to the show, Josh Lindbaum. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, man. Rekindling old relationships from from years past. I'm excited to catch we up are. on your on your career and hear what's new. So, um, so as a brief background, we we connected. I want to say it was probably the fall of 2015, and yep. uh, spent spent a couple off seasons together. And your your daughter, I think, was was born with a congenital heart thing, right? Yeah. And and that was what led you to stick around in Indianapolis. She's she's doing well now. She is. She's doing very well. She's awesome. three. She's rambunctious and, uh, she's, she's the life of our, of our family. She never stops. Awesome. <laughs> so always good to start a podcast off with great news. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about it. you're an Indiana guy. Um, you're, mm-hmm. you're born and raised. So were you a multi-sport athlete, uh, back in there? Um, you know, I, I was, but I wasn't, uh, mm-hmm. probably one of my, one of my greatest regrets going through high school is that I only played baseball. Yeah. Um, but I, I was on the intramural circuit, so I was like the Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal of intramural basketball. But uh, growing growing up um, in Indiana, uh, I, I I played all the sports, but mm-hmm. you know, organized like they weren't organized. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I loved playing football. I loved playing uh, basketball, and and I wish that I would have played those um, in high school, but but I didn't. I feel like yeah, if you're in Indiana, you at least got to play pickup hoops, right? Yep. That's the way it works. Yep, for sure. Um, so I'm curious, like you, you say you regret not doing it. Do, do you feel like it impacted your development? Do you feel like it was, you know, not rolling with a different social circle? What, what was it that you feel like you missed out on? Um, you know, I think a lot of it was just my friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, all my friends that were on the baseball team, they all played football, they all played basketball. Uh, you know, I felt like I was pretty good at it. You know, the football coach and basketball coach always asked me to play. I just never did. I was, I was so focused on baseball through high school that, you know, I, I did the, um, lessons in the, in the winter, mm-hmm. uh, played all summer, um, took, took a brief break in the fall, but, uh, I was just, you know, I was committed to baseball. I knew that, um, if I was going to have a future in, you know, sports, it was going to be with baseball. It wasn't going to be mm-hmm. with the other two. So from a, from a really young age, I don't want to say I specialized because I didn't, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, I still played played other sports. I still was a kid. Uh, So it wasn't like I was just playing baseball. Yeah. I think people forget too, like, um, you know, just because you didn't play other sports in like an organized season long format doesn't mean you were, you know, like I I know for me personally, I can remember in high school messing around with street hockey and, you know, whatever we did in gym class, ultimate Frisbee, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. But just because it wasn't an organized season doesn't mean you're not getting the benefits. And then Obviously, strength and conditioning can give you a lot of that that versatility that you might otherwise get from playing hoops or football or whatever it was. So, um, yeah, and I was, you know, I was I was actually really lucky from a strength and conditioning yeah. standpoint. Um, you know, I I had an opportunity at a very young age to go over to Purdue um, and meet with you know the strength coach over there at the time was Jim Lathrop, mm-hmm. and you know he introduced me to the strength and conditioning world at a very young age. So. Um, I think having that foundation helped yeah. me. Um, you know, I remember in the summer times, uh, playing, you know, ultimate Frisbee on the practice fields, you know, when, when Drew Brees was there, yeah. um, guys like Vinny Sutherland, uh, you know, Matt Mitrione. Um, I, so I remember being around those guys and being exposed to high level athletes, uh, you know, through that. 
That's huge. Now you were, and you were a third rounder out of high school. Um, mm-hmm. g- give me the, give me the scouting report on you out of high school. Where, where were you at relative to kind of today's third rounders? We're, we're, we're recording this a week after the draft. So I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Man, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, it seems like everyone throws so hard now. So I was probably, yeah. I was probably like a, you know, I probably wouldn't have been drafted. Yeah. Um, but you know, I was like, you know, I was 90 to 95 out of high mm-hmm. school. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like I could spin a breaking ball. I had good feel for a changeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just, I was probably one of those projectable guys. I was yep. tall, kind of lanky. They, they saw me, they could put some weight on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a hard decision, um, to sign or, or to go to college. Yeah. What was the, what was the rash? Obviously you made the decision. You went, you went to Tennessee out of mm-hmm. school. What was the rationale for heading to college for you? What, what, what tipped the scales? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it boiled down to like immaturity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, retrospectively looking back on it, I probably wouldn't have told you that when I was 17 years old, but I think a lot of it had to do with just immaturity. Um, you know, I don't know that I would have made it if I would have signed and going to college for me, uh, being in a, in, in a structured, um, program, um, you know, learning from coaches, uh, you know, having study tables and having practice and balancing schoolwork. Um, that, that really helped me grow and mature and, uh, you know, college for me w- was the best fit. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious. So you, you spent a year at Tennessee and mm-hmm. then, and then transferred, uh, back closer to home to Purdue. What was the rationale mm-hmm. for the, for the change after that first year? Cause you, you, you were a starter for Tennessee, correct? You, you got yeah, right, out, right off the bat. Yeah. Um, not, not to get into too much detail, but, uh, it, it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, Growing up in Indiana, like you're talking about, uh, you, you go to SEC, you go play in the SEC. I was yeah. a weekend starter my freshman year. Um, and there was just some, there was some, some cultural stuff, uh, with the team that, that really didn't sit well with me. Um, and then, you know, just having to make that decision, um, to transfer, you know, I, I felt bad because I'd made a commitment, um, not only to the university, but to my teammates, but, you know, it was just a thing where it just wasn't a good fit. And, you know, coming back home to Purdue, uh, being close to home, you know, I'd grown up around the coaching staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew what they stood for. And it was, I mean, it was, it was great for me. Um, and, you know, I give a lot of credit to, you know, Coach Schreiber when he was at Purdue, um, developing and molding me, you know, kind of into the person that I am today. You know, it went well for you too. And you, you correct me if I'm wrong. You became the the closer at Purdue when you went back to mm-hmm. to there. Um, did you did you stay in that role right up until the time you were drafted, or did you go back to starting before the draft? Um, no, I stayed in the closer role, and then when I was drafted, uh, they put me back into the rotation um, mm-hmm. for my first year, year and a half with the Dodgers, and then they transitioned me back into a reliever role, which is what I was called up. Um, with the Dodgers initially in 2011. It's just kind of interesting because they actually did like a feature during the draft last year about like, you know, be, be very leery of drafting like college relievers. Like they just don't uh-huh. seem to like do well. And I mean, I think the assumption is if you aren't good enough to pitch as a weekend guy, um, you know, in college, who's, who's, who's to say that you're going to be a, a big league regular, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. what, what was yeah. it about going to the, to the bullpen that, that made you better? Was it that you narrowed a pitch mix or was it, was it just like a mentality thing? Did you, did you feel like it helped your development? You know, it was, I remember when it happened, it was actually kind of by chance. Mm-hmm. Um, I was starting on a Friday night and our bullpen was kind of like iffy mm-hmm. when I was at Purdue. Um, but I was starting on a Friday against Indiana and, 
typical Midwest weather, it was like snowing, raining, sleeting, and sunny all at the same time. Um, and the game on Friday ended up getting canceled, but I had pitched an inning. Mm-hmm. So I, was, I wasn't going to start. And then the next day, um, our coach came and asked me, he's like, hey, do you think you could come in in relief today? And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I feel fine. I probably can't start. I can give you an inning, though. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Big Ten play, we had double headers on Saturdays. So I come in, I think it was in the first game of the double header to close the game out. And I was like 95, 96, <laughs> um, which I hadn't thrown that hard as a starter the entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the game, he was like, hey, we need a closer. What do you think? And, you know, I thought from that standpoint, I can have, you know, I can impact multiple games on the weekend um, instead of just one. So, you know, let's do it and kind of just took off from there. That's awesome. And so it worked out well. You became a second rounder mm-hmm. again. Um, you know, but fast forwarding a little bit after, you know, some, some time in the minor leagues, what initially got you to the big leagues wasn't enough to keep you consistently in the big mm-hmm. leagues. So I'm curious, like, as you look at it in hindsight, what, what kept you from sticking on a big league roster between, you know, 2011 and 2014? Yeah, I think, uh, I think not knowing who I was as a pitcher. Uh, you know, one of the, I think one of the hardest, um, battles guys face when they get in a pro ball is you're drafted and you're immediately compared to somebody Mm -hmm. and coming up through the minor leagues being drafted um that's something mentally that i had to fight was just fighting those comparisons you know you get compared to guys and you're you're trying to be somebody you're not and in that 2011 and 2014 period i was a reliever you know i had set up um i'd been kind of like a long guy and then i get traded uh, two or three times, um, was traded to, from LA to Philly, Philly to Texas. And then on the Texas, I become a starter. Um, so, you know, I didn't know who I was as a pitcher. You know, I'd gone to different organizations. I'd relieved. I'd started. So I was kind of in like this searching process of who am I and, you know, what makes me good. And so you kind of get to that point in your career where you, you've been up and down a little bit in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, obviously, uh, I think it was Pittsburgh claimed you off waivers, correct? Mm-hmm. And and then the about a week later, you, you signed to go to Korea. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm yeah. curious, uh, you know, what what led to that decision was just like you know, opportunity fell into your lap. Was it something you were actively seeking out? Um, you know, because you know, I think historically guys think like Japan, Japan, Japan. That's like the first place. Yeah. But but Korea has has also kicked out some really, really good players. You mm-hmm. know, who have guys who have gone over and developed and come back. So where where was your head at with that? Uh, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, being up and down, um, being designated, not having, you know, a, a solid foundation um, of knowing where I was going to be kind of led into that. And, you know, our, our son was born uh, December 17th of that year. Mm-hmm. And we, we got a call about two or three hours after he was born from my agent at the time. And he had said, you know, hey, you have an offer from Korea and you have 24 hours to decide. <laughs> And so, you know, just as a family, having having some stability, yeah. uh, going somewhere, knowing that you're going to make pretty good money, um, it was at the time what was best for our family. And, you know, looking back now, obviously, it was the best decision that I've made in my career. Yeah. Did the whole family come with you when you first went over? Yeah, they did. Um, so uh, they waited a little bit, but they, they all five years that I was there, they, they spent with me. That's awesome. Um, yeah. and, that, and that leads me to my next question. So that happens in... December of 14, you go over there and you pitch mm-hmm. during 15 and we met up that fall and mm-hmm. like we're, I, I distinctly remember a conversation we had in my office where you uh-huh. were like, 
hey, I threw 88 innings in 2014, and I just <laughs> threw over 200 innings. And I'm, like, expecting the next, like, line to be, like, my arm feels like it's going to fall off. And, like, my whole body hurts. And you were like, I feel awesome. I feel like I could keep going. Yeah. And I was like, hey, guys don't almost triple their, their inning outputs um, from one year to the next. I know you've been a starter in the past, but, like, it was a big innings jump, right? Like, nowadays, yeah. like, we hear about, like, you know, don't bump more than 10% week to week, like stay away from like the, the 1.5 to one acute to chronic workload. So it flies <laughs> in the face of everything we know about innings limits. So yeah, I, what, what was it, man? Like, what is it your routine that changed? Was it the Korean game? Like, was there something different about going over there that, that allowed you to handle that workload? Uh, well, I mean, I think first I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, because you know, there were some effects the next year. I mean, I felt good, but, um, you know, the next year I struggled a little bit. I, I created some bad habits. Uh, but you know, going back, um, I'm not sure what it was. Uh, you know, I think part of it was being, uh, having an opportunity. Uh, a lot of it was adrenaline, um, you're, you're, you show up in, in Korea, you show up in Japan and like, you're the guy, yep. you know, the team looks to you every time you get the ball, you're expected to win. Um, so I think a little bit of that was responsibility, mm-hmm. knowing that, uh, my teammates counted on me and then, uh, just, you know, the routine, um, you, you start to feel confident. Uh, you start to get the ball every, you know, five, six days mm-hmm. and you just, you know, the innings start to pile up, the starts start to pile up and you just, you just kind of like ride that wave. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, like I, like you said, you know, I didn't really feel my body felt fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a good base built up from a strength and conditioning standpoint. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, just kind of a, a multitude of factors. I think you also talked about, wasn't, wasn't manual therapy over there just a lot easier mm-hmm. to come by? Like, I, I feel like, you know, you've yeah. been up and down between AAA and the big leagues. So in AAA, you don't always have the resource you need. You go to the mm-hmm. big leagues and you never want to be that guy that's, that's always asking for mm-hmm. it when you're just trying to stick on a roster. Like, did they actually push more massage, stuff like that in, in Korea? Yeah, they did. Um, so the, the starter routine, I mean, manual therapy was available every single day if you wanted it. Uh, there's, you know, there were guys on our team that took advantage of it, you know, full, full body, head to toe stuff. Um, the way it works as a starting pitcher is that you kind of get assigned an inning during the game if you're not pitching and you have that entire inning, um, to go get treatment, um, to go get worked on, whatever it might be. Um, so there was more manual therapy. Um, you know, there was some stuff away from the field too, uh, from like, uh, um, you know, treatment standpoint, you know, cupping, uh, some, some, some different needling techniques Mm -hmm. that, uh, you had access to, uh, but you know, just, just the focus on the player, the treatment of the player, I think is a little different. Um, and, and, you know, it just, that goes to the staffs as well. You know, when you're in the minor leagues, you have one trainer usually. Yeah. And sometimes at home, a massage therapist comes in, but you know, you just don't have access to that because of, because of time. Yep. Talk to me a little bit about the Korean game. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's obviously markedly different from American baseball. I think there was a period at which like it was known for having a really, really small strike zone. You mm-hmm. know, it, I don't know how it, how it was then when you were there versus now, um, you know, fill me in a little bit about it, especially with the, the world watching a lot of Korean baseball right now. It's a good perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, high contact game, you know, the, the biggest difference is depth, uh, one through five, one through six in the lineups are, are usually pretty good. 
but you know the depth falls off pr- pretty fast when you start having guys coming off the bench. Um, from a hitting standpoint, it's more of a contact oriented um, game uh, where you know your six, your six, seven, eight, nine guys they're trying not to strike out. They're trying to put the ball in play and make the defense make plays. Um, and then you know the other guys are you know trying to hit tanks. Uh, it's a, it's a lot more you know the difference between I guess Korea and Japan would be Japan uh, baseball in Japan it's a little bit more um, small ball oriented you know moving runners uh, not not as much emphasis on power um, there I mean obviously guys with power but uh, and you know in Korea it's just uh, it, it's just different uh, yeah. swing paths are different swing mechanics are different mm-hmm. um, so so there's a lot of adjustments that I had to make as, as a pitcher. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how do you help your development? I remember like talking to Miles Michaelis about going to Japan, mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you're forced to field your position incredibly well. Like mm-hmm. what were the things that you felt it forced you to learn as a pitcher about yourself? Um, yeah. So initially, you know, I was, you know, fastball slider change up in the U S um, I go over there and immediately, you know, my strikeout pitch was my slider and guys were fouling it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I needed a pitch that, you know, looked like my fastball that, that created some depth, um, you know, guys, bats stay in the, in the, on plane so long there that they're able to just kind of throw their hands mm-hmm. at pitches. Um, so I, I needed to develop an out pitch. Um, and then historically I had always struggled with lefties a bunch. Uh, I, I didn't have anything that kind of ran into a lefty. Everything was primarily away. I was two seam change up away and then I'd run a four seam um, but my four seam rides a little bit so there's nothing truly coming into a lefty mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the lineups there are predominantly left-handed um, so adding a cutter adding a splitter um, and that kind of opened up some different zones within the uh, within you know the strike zone that I could that I could attack and do some different things a little differently Absolutely. So I'm curious, you just talked about a splitter and I feel like if, mm-hmm. if you go and you play baseball in Asia, you at least have to have the discussion, right? <laughs> um, yeah. and I, and I've been around some different guys, like Oliver Drake is one of our guys. Mm-hmm. I think he had the highest splitter usage of any pitcher in baseball last year. Um, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time around Kurt Schilling kind of late in his career and, I know mm-hmm. Kurt, Kurt talks, he throws a split finger fastball. Like it's not a change up to him. It's, it's a power mm-hmm. pitch that he holds very light in his fingertips. I'm curious, like what's, what's your mindset with respect to a splitter? Everything from like how tight you grip it to, to where you start it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, so the splitter is a, is a power pitch. Um, it's, it's a fastball. Uh, it's also, I would say it's one of the harder pitches to throw. That's why, you know, I don't think a lot of guys throw it is because of how volatile it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to kill spin to create drop. Mm-hmm. And when you kill, when you kill spin, um, the consistency of the break isn't going to necessarily be there like it would on a curveball or, mm-hmm. you know, even a fastball or a cutter. Yep. Um, so, you know, my, my mindset is fastball. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I kind of call it like a primal pitch. Um, it's one of those pitches that I'm thinking, get my front foot down and then just fire it. Yeah. Uh, but from a, from a pressure standpoint, I would say it's, I hold it like a, like a fastball, um, from a pressure standpoint, but I, I focus on the pressure being in between, um, my first two knuckles, which would, 
be on my index finger and my middle finger. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to squeeze at those two points uh, just a little bit to allow that ball to kind of like slip out. Yeah, I feel like that, and that's the difference between a split and a fork ball. I think they've they've talked about Drake's being actually like a fork ball, and it's mm-hmm. much like tighter in his hand. Whereas I always remember Kurt showing it off, and you could literally just like pull the baseball out of his hand very very easy, it would just slide out because it wasn't it just wasn't taken quite as wide. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, yeah, and and put it this way, how did you, how did you use it? You know, I mean, that's a that's a strange thing to say, but. Mm-hmm when you look at like a shilling, I keep coming back to him. Like he had a pitch that he threw for a strike and one that he did. He had a four seam and a mm-hmm. split and, you know, he would mix in a breaking ball here and there. Like how was your usage with that? Was it something that was always a swing and miss pitch or mm-hmm. um, how did you attack things with it? Yeah, I, uh, it's primarily swing and miss pitch for me. Um, but, but with that being said, it's all, I can use it at any point in the count. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm never trying to throw a strike with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if I, if I know a guy's geared up for a fastball, it's a great pitch to throw. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, I like throwing it OO, um, throwing it behind in the count. Uh, if I can, you know, start it up a little bit, but I'm just, I'm, my thought process is, is kind of just driving it right through the catcher's neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way I'm keeping it on line, you know, a little bit yeah. above the knee. Um, and that plays off of my four seam really well. Yeah. And then trusting that the grip that it's, it's going to go, yeah. you know, going to go down. That's the thing. You're not trying to start it lower. Like you're, you're throwing yeah. just like heater. Okay. That's an interesting yep. one. Um, so, so building on that, how has the pitch mix changed over the years? Right. So there've been four seams, two seams, cutters, sliders, <sighs> curveballs, change up and the splitter. Like how has the arsenal evolved <sighs> to what it is nowadays? And, and have you also dealt with challenges where, you know, at times they blended together in, in certain cases? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a kitchen sink guy. Uh, I don't, you know, that was part of that discovery process of going to Korea is realizing, you know, I'm not a guy that's going to go out and, you know, I'm not going to sit 96, 97. Um, but I can, you know, I can command my fastball. Um, I've I've ditched my two seam. Now I've got a, a really, really good spin rate. Um, Mm -hmm. so I can command my fastball in all quadrants of the zone. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I've got a cutter, um, I have a changeup, split, uh, curveball, and this offseason I added a, a horizontal slider. Nice. Um, and the, you know, the the issue, like you said, is making sure that um, those pitches don't blend together and yeah. they just become like one and a half pitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and with the technology we have now, it's like yeah. you know, TrackMan and Rapsodo. Like, it's really, really easy um, to on the pitch plots to see if those pitches are starting to. Um, blend together, which is something that, um, you know, mine luckily haven't done. Even, you know, the changeup and the split have different movement profiles. Yep. Um, and, and those two you would think would have very, very similar, but, uh, my, mine are different and they're different in the way that I use them as well. That's interesting. You know, I think, I feel like, a, I don't know if, if this has been your experience. I've, I've got caught enough splitters like in just bullpens where, you know, I always loved, I had no problem catching the guys where the bottom just kind of fell out of it. Mm-hmm. The guys that I hated were the ones that had like the weird knuckle that mm-hmm. had like a lot of like arm side run to it. Those were, those were the ones that just yeah. destroyed my thumbs over and over again. So, yeah. uh, Josh James from the Astros had a, had a split like that coming up and it was terrifying yeah. to catch. So, um, yeah, is, and that's, is yours more predictable? You feel like? Yeah, it's, it's gotten more predictable for sure. I remember early on, uh, it would knuckle. Uh, it would kind of do some funny stuff. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of the volatility of the pitch when you kill the spin is that it just doesn't rotate, um, yeah. very consistently. 
Mm-hmm. So it's one of those pitches that you have to throw a lot that, you know, that I have to get a feel for. It's always usually like the last pitch that I get a feel for in spring training or coming into a season. But once I have it, uh, it's, it's a really, really good pitch for me. I like it. So we, we talked about how the, the pitch mix has evolved. Um, I'm curious how also like the, the preparation from like a, just a strength edition stuff on a, mm-hmm. on a five day rotation. Cause I know in Korea, you sometimes get a little bit longer, correct? Mm-hmm. Like now you're on a five day rotation coming back to mm-hmm. the U S what's a, what's a five day rotation look like for you first in terms of throwing. So day zero, you go out and you make a start, you throw 95 pitches, whatever it is. What mm-hmm. are you doing days one, two, three, and four to get ready for that next start? Uh, so, so day one for me is no throw. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I picked that up, um, Derek Lowe, and mm-hmm. I think it was 2013, 2014. Um, and just the thought process behind that is throughout the course of a season, I can build in a month of off days. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's been huge for me, um, to be able to do that. Day two, um, is kind of like, is my long toss day, uh, more of like a volume day, not so much intensity. Day three would be my bullpen day. Mm-hmm. Um, intensity more intensity rather than volume mm-hmm. day four would be uh just like a light catch yep. um light catch day just make sure my arm's still hanging on mm-hmm. and then i'd go back out on day five and, and start it and do it all over again nice and then what about like the strength conditioning sprint work mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera? what's, what's yeah. the, what do those four days look like that's you know that's something that's really changed yeah. um over the course of the year or years uh you know, understanding, and I, I've been lucky, obviously, you know, having you as a resource, um, the guys that I train with now yeah. at IFAST, yeah. uh, but, you know, understanding that everything that I do um, is, is stress, and that stress uh, either positively or negatively impacts my performance, you know, so whether it's sleep, whether it's nutrition, whether it's throwing, whether it's lifting, whether it's you know, picking my kids up, whether if they're driving me nuts, like all of those things add up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I start, you know, I'm trying to get back to baseline on my start day. Yeah. Um, so understanding kind of like that curve for me um, and planning my, my routine out has has been really, really helpful um, in getting back to baseline, you know, whatever that might be for that day. But, uh you know, trying to trying to condense um, workload, trying to get, condense volume and intensity on specific days, uh, really prioritizing recovery um, on specific days just to just to get back to that. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things you talked about was that day three bullpen. And if, if I can pick, I'm always picking day three just because mm-hmm. it, it gives you so much wiggle room on. You know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the day one, no throw. What do you, are you lifting on that day? Or are you doing manual therapy? Are you chilling out in mm-hmm. like mobility circuits, just some positional breathing? What's, what's that first day look like for you? Yeah. The, yeah. The first day, um, is, is a recovery focus. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing my positional breathing stuff, yeah. all my, all my resets. Yep. Um, I'm getting, you know, a the, the workout has changed actually this year a little bit and I, and I like it mm-hmm. is that it's more of like a mobility circuit. It's yeah. quick. Um, the, the workout really doesn't last any longer than like 30, 35 minutes. Yep. So it's in, it's out and I'm done. Leave feeling um, refreshed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just because, you know, the day before you've pretty much trashed your body. Yeah. Um, so then to go out and have to do it again the next day, um, you know, the lift usually isn't as good. Yeah. Uh, the intensity is usually not as good. So then I push that back to day, which would be day two. Yep. 
um, more, more my heavier, heavier lift. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said about it, right? You have day zero, which is obviously like probably the most stressful of your five days. Mm -hmm. And then you have kind of like a combination of day two dot slash day three, which is like a, it's basically a 24 hour block where you lift and you do your, mm -hmm. your bullpens. I don't know if you, do you do a lift on both days two and day three, will you do something? Uh, or just one. Yeah. 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 Usually I'll do, um, I'll do both. I'll do a lift on both days. Usually two yeah. total bodies. There you go. So you the, the, the lift on day three for me, um, is, is quick. It's like 20, 30 minutes. Yep. Um, and the way that we've kind of structured that is a higher intensity, lower volume, um, being able to touch, you know, some heavier weight, move yep. it fast. Um, and just kind of, because there is the stress from the bullpen, yeah. Um, coming in and just knocking it out, uh, yeah. especially with the day two being more of a heavier volume day. Yep. It's, it's perfect, man. You've got, you've got a high low model right there, right? Day, mm -hmm. uh, day zero is high. Day one is low. Day two into early day three is high. Day four is low and then go do it again. And it, it's, yep. it, it works really, really well. What we see a lot of are guys that make the mistake of, Right. They go out and they throw a hundred pitches on day zero. Then they come in on day one, they crush a lower body lift and then they throw a day two pen and then they yep. lift on day three and they, they wonder why they're just literally racing to play catch up on day four. So they don't feel so, yeah. so terrible on day, on day five. So we've seen guys like, uh, Soroka is a guy who, who actually lifts right after his start, um, mm -hmm. just as a way to kind of consolidate. He's done that in the past. Kluber did that in the past yeah. a little bit too. So it's not for everybody, yeah. but it's a way to consolidate it. Right. Yeah. And I have, there's, uh, there's certain days that I have where I, you know, on day games, um, I'll, I'll do that where I'll, I'll lift after my start, not so much on a night game, but on a day game, I'll sometimes I'll lift before, you know, yeah. post start that way I've got, you know, an extra, you know, 12 or however many hours, mm -hmm. um, to recover in that, in that process. Yeah. Well, you find it, um, I know this is something we see a lot in the off season. Like we have a lot of guys who don't like Monday bullpens if they didn't throw on Sunday, like they'll, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be like catch Monday and bullpen Tuesday. Um, is that, do you, you feel rusty when you take that, that day one, like when you come out to long toss on day two, does it, does it feel sticky or anything like that? Or you usually feel like you can groove right into it. Yeah, I usually feel like I can groove right into it. I think, you know, there's this like common belief in baseball that if we take a day off, we're going to get worse. Yeah, I know. Um, and I've, and I've never really understood it. It's like, you know, we throw a baseball for seven, eight, nine months straight out of the year mm -hmm. and, you know, we're not going to get worse. Um, yeah. you might feel a little weird, uh, going out for five or 10 throws, but mm -hmm. I mean, we, we know how to throw baseballs. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I always love the, the day one off, man. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're carrying yeah. the flag. <laughs> so, uh, I love so, it. It's, it's huge. So you, you, you hinted at your work with the, the crew at IFAST and, and Mike mm -hmm. and Bill are good friends for a long time and some of the really progressive guys in the field. In the field. Yeah. So talk to me about what you picked up there and, and how it's impacted your, your preparation and durability. Cause they're doing some real cool stuff. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, they, yeah, I gotta, I gotta thank you for the, the contact on that one. Oh, Cause you want to put me in touch with them. <laughs> Uh, but you know, Mike and Bill are great. And then, you know, everybody that I've come in contact with, uh, Ty Terrell wrote my programming yeah. my first year, one of your ex old interns, Jason yeah. Neal, there you go. um, wrote some programming yeah. and then, you know, now Eric Huddleston, but, yeah. uh, you know, the, I think the common thread, like with you, um, with Mike and Bill is that their goal is just to build athletes and it's to make people feel better. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what sold me on them, you know, just like you is that you, know, you go in and, and Bill is working with, you know, a 10 year old kid. Um, and then he's working with me and then he's got, you know, an 85 year old client. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see that athletes are, 
all ages. It doesn't matter. Um, but the thing that, the thing that they've really helped me realize there, uh, is, you know, more of like a longevity, you know, aspect of it. Uh, how everything, um, you know, from, from the resets, how, you know, the resets, what, you know, the PRI resets, they drive the warm up and then the warm up and the movement patterning, um, drives the lift. And then the lifts should drive, uh, the movements on the field. And I think what happens a lot of times in, in especially baseball strength and conditioning, because it's such, you know, such a fine, um, movement pattern in baseball is that these things become mutually exclusive from one another mm-hmm. is that, you know, you prescribe, uh, you know, your, your breathing resets and then the player doesn't understand how that's affecting, uh, what he does on the field, he or she does on the field. Um, and what Bill and Mike have been able to show me is that all of these things are connected mm-hmm. and the same movement patterns that you're trying to reinforce are the same movement patterns that I'm trying to get to on the field, mm-hmm. um, in order to put my body in, in good positioning. I find myself on a daily basis, like I'll be teaching some kind of like a half kneeling one arm cable press with like an opposite arm reach or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I'm literally just like, think glove side fastball. Like what what does your scapula need to do to get to that position? And I think if you Mm -hmm. can create context that you're always going to win athletes over more, whether you're talking about basketball players, tennis players, whatever it may be. Yeah. um, You got to build. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. And you know, for me, like I have something that I never would have even realized had I not gone there. Like, I have a hard time, you know, finding my, my heels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just naturally like, I want to get to my toes. Mm-hmm. And obviously as a pitcher, like if I want to get to my toes, I'm going to become very, very quad dominant mm-hmm. um, when I go to throw and I'm not going to be able to get into my right, you know, my right glute. Um, so, you know, a lot of the lifts that I do, I'm focused on, you know, pushing myself back, staying into my heels, finding you know, my right arch, uh, and, and realizing that that's all movement patterning on the mound that I'm trying to do when I go to drive off the mound and drive down the mound, like I'm doing these lifts. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's very, very important for athletes to realize. Don't just, you know, we talk even just deadlifting, right? Don't just think about lifting the weight. Think about mm-hmm. put, putting force into the ground in an efficient yep. manner. And th- that those can be like life-changing, like aha moments if, if you really mm-hmm. start to think them through. So, yeah, um, I still remember my first deadlift lesson from you <laughs> talking about, you know, pu- pushing the ground away from you. Don't think yeah. about lifting the weight. Think about pushing the ground away from you finding your feet, being connected. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it all translates. It's the name of the game. Uh, all right. So we always go to a lightning round on the tail end. This is where I get to, right. actually I stole this from Robertson. So shout out to Mike. Uh, <laughs> he uses on this podcast. We just asked baseball questions. So, uh, all right. First one, what advice would you give to a teenage Josh Lindblom? Yeah. Uh, know yourself, um, know who you are, spend time doing that, know what makes you good. Um, and build a foundation uh, to, to play from. I like that. All right. Favorite pitchers, uh, to watch. Who do you like to watch and why in the game? Um, I, I love watching Zach Grinky. Uh, mm-hmm. I see, you know, just the way that he pitches, you know, command in the baseball, very cerebral. Um, obviously, I mean, you love watching, you know, guys like Garrett Cole, mm-hmm. Justin Verlander, uh, but you know, pro- probably Grinky would be, would be my favorite. That's like, that's a good one. We haven't used that one or we haven't heard that one on any responses, but I'll tell you what, there, if you're looking to show like a 16 year old kid, pretty efficient mechanics. I, I know Matt mm-hmm. Blake, who's now our pitcher coach of the Yankees, Matt years and years and years at the facility would show Grinky. You know, he was, mm-hmm. a, he wasn't a big dude, but 
you know, commanded everything, really athletic. Yeah. Um, it just, it worked. It was very efficient. So that's it. That's yeah, and, and you, and you just watch his career arc too. You know, he was a guy that, um, you know, won the Cy Young and was 96, 97 unhittable. And now he's, you know, 90 to 93 commands. Uh, so he's, he's, he's really fun to watch pitch and to see his development too has been, has been neat. I like that. I'm actually really intrigued to get your take on this one. We've asked this among a bunch of guys and gotten probably 50-50 responses. What's more important, stuff or command? Uh, you know, I would say I would say command. Really? Um, yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, stuff is obviously important. I thought you'd go um, the other I, way because you have like nine different pitches. <laughs> well, so I, when we say stuff, are we meaning like, Oh, pitch grades? Yeah. That's or we mean like, just like overall? Yeah, I could go in a lot of different directions. I mean, I guess stuff would also be a 100 mile an hour heater. So yeah. it's, 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 um, it's a tough one. but Yeah. So, I mean, I would say the important thing to realize with stuff and command um, is that they're tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these are merely tools in a tool belt. And I actually had an exchange on Twitter one the other day. Um, you know, when you, when you go to build a house and all, if all you have is a, a screwdriver, you aren't going to get very far. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding that, that command, that stuff, that pitch mix, these are all tools, um, you know, in your tool belt when you go out into a game that you can use. Uh, so I don't think that, you know, any one can be better than the other. Um, and both kind of afford you different, different things, uh, to do and ways to be successful. I like that. All right. Favorite teammate of all time and why can be any, oh, any, any level. <laughs> man, this is, this is a tough lightning round one. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to go. So I'm going to have to say two people. All right. That's fine. Uh, so, so Juan Pierre. Oh yeah. Is one of the best teammates that I've ever had. Um, unbelievable human being, unbelievable teammate, just all around awesome guy. Uh, extremely helpful, encouraging. Uh, can't say enough good things about Juan. I've heard that um, from a number of different guys too. C-Shack, yeah. C-Shack and a lot of the Marlins guys raved about him. Just amazing, amazing person. Um, and then my first year, uh, uh, Jamie Wright, um, journeyman reliever. Um, he was my catch partner and just, I mean, he taught me more about being a big leaguer. He taught me more about, you know, being a good teammate, um, than I think anybody that I've, that I've had been with in my career and just, I mean, he just wanted the best for everybody. And here's a guy, I think Jamie, this isn't like an official record, but I think 10 years in a row, he went into spring training as a non-roster invite and made the team every single year. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> insane. Really good. Wow. All right. So, so uh, last one, I, I know okay. you're a, uh, you're a prolific reader, uh, whether that's with respect to baseball, your faith, anything imaginable. Yeah. What's a, what's a, what's a book you would, uh, you would recommend to just about any up and coming baseball player or coach? Man, you're asking some hard questions here. <laughs> um, I mean, I've, I've got to go with mental ABCs of pitching. There you go. Um, for up, you know, up and coming baseball players. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I have, I've read that thing cover to cover you know, hundreds of times, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, have it actually, you know, uh, Roy, when I played with Roy Halliday, he gave it to me on, uh, before audiobooks were audiobooks. I have it on a CD That's awesome. at my house. <laughs> um, he, he, he paid somebody to have him record it. Um, so I think up and coming baseball player, that would be, uh, that would be one. It just, I mean, it's, it's just so good. 
That's that's good feedback. All right, folks can find you on Twitter. It's Josh Lindbaum fifty two, and then Instagram. It's JL Boomer twenty five. Um, yes. This was awesome, man. Really enjoyed yeah. catching up, and uh, lots of good tidbits in here for for players, coaches, parents, all of the above. So I appreciate you taking the time. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good, uh, always good talking with you. Absolutely, man. We're we're keeping our fingers crossed for a season this year because I'm I'm looking forward to seeing you go out <laughs> and do your thing back here in the U.S. So uh, best of luck this year. Thanks again. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.